The scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again. I hope you're doing well taking care of yourselves and resting in the rock that is Christ. If you're new, welcome to Risen. We're so glad to have you with us. I hope and pray that, you know, God grabs a hold of your heart today because that's what worship is. It's meeting with God. And right now we're in a sermon series for our 2021 vision, Cultivate. And we're in the first bucket uh, of this vision, Cultivating Spiritual Life. And today's theme is cultivating repentance. And the passage Eric read to us today, Psalm 51, is probably the second most famous psalm after Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. 51 is in reference to David's relationship with Bathsheba. If you don't know the story of Bathsheba, she was the wife of Uriah. But who is Uriah? Well, when David was a fugitive, when he was in the wilderness running away from Saul, 40 men voluntarily gathered around David. In scripture, they are called his mighty men, and they defended David. They risked their lives to protect his life. They became his greatest friends, his brothers. And one of them was Uriah the Hittite. So this isn't just any old person. This is a man to whom David owes his very own life to. But one day, when Uriah was away on duty, 
and you can read the full account in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David sees Uriah's wife Bathsheba and he calls her into his home and he lays with her. Bathsheba becomes pregnant and David tries to cover up this scandal by calling Uriah back from home with hopes that Uriah will sleep with Bathsheba so that he'll think it's his child. But Uriah won't. He stands guard outside the palace gates. So then David sends Uriah back with a message to Joab, the general, to send Uriah to the front line to make sure he dies so that David doesn't have to deal with the shame when his friend finds out. After Uriah dies, David brings Bathsheba into his house. It's, it's a terrible series of events. You know, when you're reading the account, it's really just difficult to even read through it. And at this point, many people know what David has done. Bathsheba's household and the entire palace knows that David had called Bathsheba initially into his home. People know that Uriah was called home but never stepped foot into his own house out of dedication to serving his people. People know that Uriah was sent back to war whereby after his death, Bathsheba is brought into David's home with child. You see, up to this point, David is, is sending people everywhere. He's sending messengers to Bathsheba. He's sending messengers to Joab. He sent messengers for Uriah. He's orchestrating all of it. But starting in chapter 12 in 2 Samuel, God does the sending. And he sends Nathan, the prophet, to confront David about his sins. And when Nathan confronts David... David repents. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And David writes Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance. And that's what we're going to take a look at. First, we're going to take a look at what is repentance? And then two, a life of repentance. You know, when you study the Old Testament, the word for repentance is shuv. It means to return. David uses this word in verse 13 of Psalm 51 when he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Sinners will return to you. But what does it mean to return to God? Well, John Calvin, uh, one of the leading figures of the Protestant Reformation, he described repentance as a piercing conviction of one's own sin that leads to a grieving, humbling, and enlightening, which prompts a turning away from our own will and towards God's will, God's word and will. However, nothing can be achieved without the truth of God's word and prayerfully seeking the Holy Spirit to mold the inner disposition of our hearts, right? So what we see here, what it means to 
return to God, what it means to repent is to be convicted of our own sin uh, in a grieving, humbling sort of way and prompts us to turn from ourselves and towards God. But this can only be initiated through the Word of God and through the power of the Spirit. So what we see in David's account with Bathsheba is the courage of a prophet to confront the king with the truth of God's word. In other words, the truth of God's word is the objective standard by which Nathan the prophet holds God's people accountable. I was listening to a podcast the other day on the popularity of whataboutisms. Uh, what is a whataboutism? Well, a whataboutism is a rhetorical technique to take the spotlight off of oneself and to deflect it towards something else. For example, if someone tells me that my driving is erratic, I'll say, well, what about your driving? So instead of focusing um, on the issue at hand, which is my present erratic driving, I'm deflecting the blame to something else. We see this in our politics. Rather than a thorough understanding and discussion of the facts, instead the power dynamics will say, what about you? What about this? What about that? We hear, what about isms? We see this in our relationships. Rather than mutual accountability and growth, there's deflection, pride, and whataboutisms. The common thread in whataboutisms is this. Everyone wants accountability, but no one is willing to be held accountable. Everyone wants accountability, but no one is willing to be held accountable. But if you're a Christian, the Word of God is the authority in your life. And we can't have it both ways. We can't have it for others and not for ourselves. We can't want other people to be held accountable by it and then have ourselves not be held accountable by it. And so if we want peace in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, there can only be one king, one authority, one clear standard of accountability for all. And by the grace of God, David has what Calvin says, the piercing conviction of his own sin that leads to a grieving and humbling and waking up that prompts him to turn away from himself and to God. David doesn't say to Nathan any what about isms. He doesn't say, what about Bathsheba? Right? It takes two to tango, Nathan. I'm not the only one at fault here. He doesn't say, Nathan, I'm the king of Israel. Do you know who you're talking to? He doesn't say, Nathan, what about your tone? I think there's a better way you can communicate. He doesn't say, David, what about the other king? That king is worse than me. Why are you giving me such a hard time? He doesn't say, what about all the stress that I have to deal with, Nathan? While all of those whataboutisms might have some truth, David doesn't 
allow the whataboutisms to minimize his sin. David is willing to be held accountable. And friends, this is the key that begins the process of repentance and renewal and growth. It is the ability to allow God's word to address us without any whataboutisms. This is what David does, and he's convicted of his sin. In verse 3, David says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, David understands that sin will lead to condemnation. And condemnation, which is judgment, leads to death, physical, relational, and spiritual death. If someone sins against us and we condemn them by lashing out or ignoring, we're bringing about death into that relationship, you see? But in David's case, he believes that his sin will not lead to condemnation, but to forgiveness. Even though God has the right to condemn him, to be just and judge, God doesn't. It's incredible. Now, this doesn't mean that there are no consequences. Right? God tells David through Nathan that because of what he did, he will lose his child with Bathsheba. The throne will depart from his family and violence will rip apart the kingdom in civil war. David's act of violence will reap a whirlwind of violence. As the king of Israel, David has lost the kingdom. The consequences are huge. But Calvin notes that in Psalm 51, David's repentance is inseparably connected to forgiveness. Right? David asks God uh, in verses 1 to 2, Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. In verse 7, David continues, Purge me with hyssop, which is a plant used in ceremonial sprinkling, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. You see, though there are uh, severe social consequences for David, personally, though, and relationally, God desires David's repentance because God wants to bless him with forgiveness. God wants to bless him with a relationship that can renew him, that can transform him, and a kingdom that can never be lost. But how is this possible? I mean, this, this almost seems a little bit too unrealistic. Um, it seems almost too much of like a, a fantasy, something that would be nice, but we know is not true. 
let's think about it this way. Let me, let me give a micro example. Let's say you get into a car accident with a stranger. Um, they'll demand uh, restitution. They'll demand justice. They'll demand payment. And they probably won't want to be your friend after this. They won't want to see you. Um, they won't want to have a personal relationship with you. Um, most likely, they will not forgive you. This is an impersonal form of justice. But let's say you get into a car accident with a family member. Uh, they may ask for restitution, but it wouldn't ruin the relationship. They'll forgive you. You'll still be friends and life will go on. But let's say you couldn't afford the cost of restitution. The cost exceeded your coverage. Then the other person would have to absorb the cost. They would literally have to pay the price for your sin on your behalf. But let's take it a little bit further. Let's say that they do that and you know whether they have to or they were forced to do it, let's say it still did not affect their relationship with you. Your relationship was still strong as ever. It's as if, uh, like God, they forgot about your sins. They hid their face from it. They blotted it out. Now, let's say your friend not only paid the cost of the accident themselves, but let's say they bought you a new car. They covered the hike in your insurance premium. They handled all of the DMV complications and was able to get your license maybe un unsuspended. That would be incredible, wouldn't it? It would be a true form of grace. There are still consequences and you may have to pay some of them, but they've helped you with it. The grace of that friend has saved you in more than just one way. But there's a catch. The only thing that you got to do is you got to own up and repent of your fault in that accident. You can't have any whataboutisms talking about this car or that light or what they did. You can't minimize your fault. Their grace is solely dependent upon your repentance. Would you do it? Of course you would. Well, Risen, that small micro example is, is, is just a window of the gospel, right? There's good news there. There's grace there. But the gospel that plays out in our relationship with God is, is far greater because the power and effect of sin is, is far more worse than a car accident. The power and effect of sin in our lives warps everything. And it leaves a trail of brokenness. Because sin has a habit of residually propounding upon itself with interest. But the gospel says that when we turn to God, um, 
and not just with an intellectual awareness and an intellectual ascent, but a true heartfelt, spiritually moved, softened by the Holy Spirit, a grieving and humbling for our sins, big or small. There is forgiveness for all our spiritual accidents to God and to others. There we have cosmic and spiritual reconciliation with God. We have now access to his spiritual life, his power, renewal, and eternal life. Now, this is only possible, of course, because Jesus Christ has absorbed the cost of our sin. If you can see it as all these accidents, he's literally paid this cosmic and spiritual price on the cross because he has absorbed our death and our punishment and the wrath of God, and we get his life. We get his mercy and the delight and pleasure of God. It's absolutely amazing. This is why um, the doctrine of union with Christ is so mind-blowing. We are so one with Christ that we get who he is, everything, and Jesus gets who we are. This is what conversion is. This is what Salvation is, this is what it means to turn to God. This brings us to the second point, a life of repentance. In Calvin's chapter on repentance, he writes, Though Christians have been freed from the dominating power of sin through the renewal of the Holy Spirit, when they turn to God in Christ, they do not feel perfect freedom so as to feel no more frustrations from their sin, but there still remains in them a continuing struggle with sin. Risen, what Calvin is getting at is this conundrum of the Christian life, right? If I am a Christian, if, if God's Spirit is within me and He's promised to transform me and renew me and be with me, why do I still struggle with the same sins over and over? It's a good question. And to be honest, I struggle with it too, all the time. But when you read the Bible, struggling is not a sign of false faith or an empty faith. Actually, the opposite is true. The struggle is a sign of true faith. You know, before, we didn't care about, you know, our sins. We didn't take them seriously. But when, when God convicts us and he softens us and he opens our eyes to his grace and his life and his truth and his mercy and his hope, we're awake. We're no longer on the sideline. We're in the fight. And if you've ever tried to grow in any area of your life, you know that it's going to be a battle. You know that it's going to be a struggle. You know, maybe it's your health, whether it's the food we eat or uh, being active, you know, it's a struggle. But of course, uh, the, 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 the you know, course of action wouldn't be to just give up. It might be comfortable in the short run. Uh, but I won't ever forget um, this one time I saw my doctor and, um, you, know, I, you know, I was just kind of confessing to her, right? <laughs> My, my health sins, you know, I was like, you know, doc, um, 
man, I, I've been really unhealthy. I've been eating unhealthy, comfort eating in the pandemic, really immobile. And you know, I was trying to explain why my numbers were a little bit high. And, you know, I was expecting like a, a, maybe a typical response was, well, you know, you know what you got to do. You got to do this, you know, and, you know, I was kind of bracing for it, but, you know, I'll never forget what she said. She said, well, you know what? None of, none of us are perfect. Just don't stop fighting. Keep fighting for your health. And man, that has just stuck with me every time I want to give up and every time I get down on myself. Uh, because, you know, she understood just how bad, how hard it was, how difficult the battle is. And so I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I have it all together and that the battle is easy when it comes to your spiritual life. In Jesus, we are a new creation. Yes. But at the same time, I'm doing my best to fight the old self until, you know, that glorious day when we're all going to enter into the kingdom fully content, without any more sin, without any more tragedy. But until then... It's a battle. And it's not about not getting knocked down. It's, not, it's, it's about not staying down. In Ephesians 6, Paul calls the Christian life a spiritual war. And he literally uh, makes analogies of, of these weapons and, and how he, um, you know, uh, calls it the, you know, the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and, and how he literally compares it to staying alive in this spiritual battle. You know, my professor from seminary, Michael Horton, he always used this analogy for the Christian life. Following Jesus is like winning a war. The enemy may declare defeat to the power of the victor, but the victorious army must still be on guard, heal from their wounds, continue its duty in freeing captives and putting rebel forces down all throughout the land until every square inch is freed. You see, the Christian life, you know, Christ has won over the power of sin and the sting of death. But he's, he's renewing us. He's restoring us in real time. Everything. But there's one difference between fighting for our health per se, and fighting for our faith. You know, uh, when we fight for our health, we're using, um, you know, uh, willpower and discipline, you know, self-control. Um, but when we fight for our spiritual health, our weapons of faith are not willpower. You know, I know that so many of us um, at Risen are driven are ambitious, are hardworking, have strong wills. And there's so, so many things that you can accomplish in life. But when it comes to spiritual growth and spiritual life, willpower is not enough. Willpower is not going to make us less prideful. It's not going to make us less envious. Have you ever told someone that, you know, hey, just, you know, um, just will it. Don't be jealous. <laughs> you know, just will it. Don't get angry. Just will it. You know, don't get impatient. Willpower is not going to make us any less selfish or any less greedy or any less lustful. In contrast, Pastor Tim Keller says the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. As Christians... We never get beyond the gospel to something more advanced. 
We are not saved by the gospel and then renewed by our efforts, our willpower. Rather, the gospel is the way we are saved and renewed. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. All of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel, but do not get it. Therefore, the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is continual rediscovery of the gospel. The discovery of a new implication or rediscovery of an old implication of the gospel, seeing more or seeing again of its truth, is the key to any stage of renewal. Friends, essentially what he is saying is that a life of repentance is the process whereby the Christian never forgets that she has not arrived. A life of repentance is the process where the Christian never forgets that she does not have 2020 spiritual vision, that her repentance and her forgiveness and renewal is still a huge part of God's plan. And that she's still in the need that, that she is still in need of the mercy and forgiveness of God every single day, every single moment, just as much as the first day. And when we forget this, right, that, that we haven't arrived, um, that that God is still looking to um, work in the pockets of our heart then we're no longer coming to God for His spiritual grace. Maybe we're coming to Him to give us things, but not mercy, not grace, not power. And then we don't receive everything that comes with it. The contentment and the peace and the joy of Christ. And friends, that is the moment where you know, maybe it's, it's a short season or a long season, but that's, that's, that is the moment where we stop growing. And our faith that maybe was once bold and big turns into fear. Our hope that was maybe once courageous turns into cynicism. Our grace maybe that was once abundant turns into condemnation. Our love that was once overflowing turns into resentment. Our selflessness turns into comfort. You know, when we stop living a life of repentance, uh, we, we begin to find ourselves not addressing our own sin, but more so identifying other circumstances and the sins of others as the problem. And we've lost sight of, of, of the beauty of God's grace for us, which is experienced in our own personal and continual repentance. Friends, a life of repentance is really a beautiful thing. Honestly, when I was preparing this sermon, even, you know, like I was being convicted that I haven't been living this life enough and I've been busy with the tasks or the things or distractions, um, you know. But, man, repentance is that space where 
our appreciation just grows for Jesus's, you know, humble accommodation to us and his sacrifice and his faithfulness and loyalty to us. And, 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 and as we just throw ourselves on God's mercy, he becomes increasingly sweet and real and powerful. It's like the scales come off once again. And this is where we find victory in our struggles, not through willpower, but through a life of humble repentance that, that receives the powerful grace of God. But, but you can't receive this grace that's going to propel us with tremendous hope and love and, and mission and purpose. You can't receive that grace if you don't think you need it, if, if, if you're not living a life of repentance. But we know we need it. And friends, cultivating a life of repentance is the way to cultivate the power and the truth of the gospel in our hearts and overflow into our lives through the inside out. But we got to come to God like David came to him. Without any whataboutisms, we have to say, God, I have gone against you. Period. Full stop. No buts. And you will find the reality and power of God's grace. Friends, this is the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and, it, and it's been maybe too long that we um, find ourselves in a prolonged uh, space of repentance. So many times we get so distracted. We get so deceived um, that other things are, are so much more important and so much more urgent. So Father, we, we come before you as a church right now, as a family, um, asking for your forgiveness. We pray that you would wash away our sins individually and corporately and that you would allow us to lean into that together lean into um, your grace for our sins together united in that and that it would just unite us in humility it would unite us in joy it would unite us in love in selflessness and mission and that that would overflow our repentance with you would overflow onto each other and out of this church ah father we are so thankful for psalms like psalm 51 we do not rejoice at any of the consequences or the actions but who are we to judge you are the judge alone and you have judged all our sin ultimately in christ and so we can ask for your mercy and receive your steadfast love today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.